Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. I hope you don't mind if we start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, We praise you, we bless you, we thank you for this day and for the gift of life, for the gift of the invitation to become another Christ, to imitate your son. Lord, we ask you to be with us as we grapple with this mystery of suffering. Open our minds and our hearts and our lives to you. And we also bring to you our own special intentions each other's special intentions, and also those whom we love, who we know are struggling or suffering. And for all of these, we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Okay, so I just want to warn you how this presentation is going to kind of go. Um, the first part of the presentation is going to seem really fast. So because what I want to do basically is, is um, take you through Thomas Aquinas's um, treatise on happiness, but just kind of in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that helps you to reflect upon what he's doing and then we're going to go a step deeper, and then we'll actually dive into the, the problem of suffering. Okay, so here we go. Uh, what does everybody want? Happiness, right? And where do people look for happiness? Don't they usually look for happiness in money, right? You've heard that saying, you can never be too rich or too thin. But what happens, right? Then money starts to take control of you, right? We have this problem of people being hoarders, or you buy all this great stuff with your money, but what happens to it? It gets destroyed just really quickly, and it's nah, and like it hurt. And then sometimes having a lot of money, you've heard about these people who win the lottery, right? And then within five years, they've spent every single thing. Sometimes it's overwhelming. Can you think about it, if you had a lot of money? That it'd be really frustrating, right? There's so many things to do and so many, so many places to go, so many ways to spend your money. It can be really overwhelming. And then people can use you for your money and you never know, they might even kill you for your money. I don't know, you know, a number of years ago in Forbes magazine, they had this, um, they were interviewing this multi-billionaire. I forgot what field he was in, but he was, he was, he was so successful. Only child, you know, he went to Harvard Business School or whatever. And he was untouchable by the time Forbes magazine was interviewing him. And so they asked him, they were asking him all these questions about his particular field, right? And he didn't mind, like, you know, disclosing all of his secrets because nobody could touch him at this point. So they ask him, ask him, it's a fascinating interview, right? And then at the very end of the interview, the interviewer has this kind of throwaway question. You know how they do this? And the throwaway question was, do you have any regrets? 
And, you know, you think he'd take that in terms of his business practices, but he didn't. He took it as a personal question. And he said, I would give all the money in the world if there were someone who would miss me if I didn't come home at night. Right? So he spent all of his time chasing after money, and he didn't take the time to fall in love and have a family. But now he thought it was too late because somebody would just marry him for his money. So what do we find? We find that actually the people who have more have sometimes so much they don't enjoy it. And the people, the people who have little enjoy the little that they do have, and they enjoy it immensely. So this is one of the, one of the places Thomas Aquinas tells us that we look for happiness. Well, what's another place? I mean, you could sit down and you could make up this list too. We all try to look in something like power or control, right? Power, control, right? Why, why, do, why do we want power and control? Or, or why can power and, or control not make us everlastingly happy? Well, just by the very fact that you are in power, people are going to disagree with your choices or they just don't like being under your particular way of rule, right? They're going to rebel. Um, this is Anthony Falero's portrait of his mother, Right? So her, her control over him was something that he found oppressive, repulsive. Right? And look at this. Right? She's got the gun. She's got the home sweet home. She's got the cross in the back. But does she, does she live according to this? Right? So you can actually end up with this resentment coming from the very people you have power or control over. And also, what have we seen? People like Alexander the Great, Napoleon, they spend their entire lives chasing after power, chasing after power, right? Thinking that they're going to unlock some secret, some secrets of the universe, where they actually, where they, whereas they actually end up wreaking their own destruction, right? So we're not going to find everlasting happiness in power. Ah, oh, this is another place we look. Beauty, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Well, and who wouldn't want to be beautiful, right? To have the Fibonacci sequence face, right? To, to get all of this attention and admiration and, you know, just make your money putting makeup on, right? Or not even putting makeup on. Or who doesn't want to look like a Disney character, right? But what happens? What happens? You get chubby and ugly and wrinkly. Okay, and look, you guys right now are in this moment of your life. You have this experience here in college where... Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? This works to your disadvantage sometimes because the very person you want to think that you're attractive does not think that you're attractive. Whereas the person that you do not want to think that you're attractive thinks you're attractive, right? So this is another one. Okay. Um, oh, and you know, supermodels, you know what they call them? They call them some of the most tortured souls alive. I mean, think about that, right? Just because you're beautiful doesn't mean you're going to be happy. And if you actually look at supermodels, now do not do this. This is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. But some of these supermodels actually eat Kleenex and cotton balls, right? Just they're literally dying to be thin. And that actually can lead you to the emergency room. It's really sad, the, the number of eating disorders and the obsession with body image that happens not only um, amongst supermodels, but amongst women in general. And a number of years ago, when I was studying this in more depth, 2006, it was kind of a landmark year because three supermodels died all within, th all within six months of each other. And this was the first, Anna Carolina Reston. She was a runway model, and she was trying to live on Diet Coke and lettuce. And what ended up happening was she went into cardiac arrest on the runway. That same, within the same six months, two sisters died, Luisel Ramos and her sister Elena Ramos. 
also died of anorexia. And this continues to happen today, right? So just not even two years ago, this very this famous um, Instagram influencer, Yosi Maria, died of anorexia. Her heart stopped. So we're not going to be able to find everlasting happiness and beauty. And why? what's another place we look? Pleasure, right? Pleasure. This is We can equate happiness with pleasure. But, oh, just think about this. Oh, hamburgers. I hope you guys ate dinner. No, not yet. It's too early for dinner. Okay, so, okay, yeah, think about this, right? This is really going to be effective right now, right? Pizza, um, nacho fries. Um, okay, brownies. I hope everybody likes brownies. Okay, so I want you to think about brownies for a second. If I eat one brownie, I'm going to be happy. Now, if I eat another brownie, am I going to get happier? And then I eat another brownie and I get even happier. I eat another brownie and I get happier. I keep eating, 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 eating. What happens? I think I'm like poor sick panda bear, right? So it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Pleasure doesn't work that way. But what else happens? Pleasure can make us into slaves, addicts, right? It can ruin our lives. And then we have some really terrible, terrible forms of pleasure that are actually enslaving and emasculating men, right? Pornography, right? It's this terrible scourge. So, but if you think about it, whether it's pornography or social media or video games, you're still a slave. One of my favorite spiritual writers, Jacques Philippe, said, where there is no joy, there can never be enough pleasure. Isn't that fantastic? Think about that. Where there is no joy, there can never be enough pleasure. Okay. So what's another place we look? Fame, right? Fame or honor, as it's called. Right? Who doesn't want to be famous because somehow you live forever, right? Well, but what happens to famous people? Their privacy is taken away. People tell lies about them, right? They say that the, the famous are defamed. And, oh, this is poor Lady Gaga. I don't know if any of you watched this. Um, there was a Netflix, there was a Netflix documentary on Lady Gaga. And they were interviewing her, you know, and it was a, a time of her life where she was under a lot of pressure. She was performing for the Super Bowl halftime show. She had just broken up with her fiance, Taylor Kinney. She was working on her new album, Joanne. She was struggling with, I think, autoimmune disease. And so in this particular documentary, they have this beautiful, poignant scene where she's, you know, kind of opening herself up to her stylist, Brandon Maxwell. And this is what Lady Gaga says to him. She says, I'm alone, Brandon, every night. And all these people will leave, right? They will leave and then I'll be alone. I go from everyone touching me all day and talking at me all day to total silence. Right, so here you think she's famous, she should be happy, but she's not. And we also know famous people like Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe, right? But how did they die? So Elvis Presley, I think, died due to heart complications from the overuse of barbiturates. Marilyn Monroe, died from an overdose of barbiturates. And I think all of us were shocked, right, at the suicide of Robin Williams, right? Somebody who made everybody else laugh. There was some kind of profound sadness that he was struggling with. And then recently, more recently, um, Ariana Grande's boyfriend um, died. And um, Chris Cornell, right, committed suicide. And Chester Bendington, right, at the, the at the time he committed suicide, his net worth was $30 million. So 
fame doesn't seem to be making people everlastingly happy, right? So what's going on here? Okay, what's another place we look for everlasting happiness? Other people, right? We think, oh, none of these things are going to work, but another person maybe can make me everlastingly happy. But I think we've already started to have these experiences, right? You think right now, who were your best friends when you were a child? Are they still your best friend? Probably not, right? Chances are, like percentage-wise, probably not. Why? Because what happens to the people who are close to us? They grow up, they move away, they change, right? Or maybe they even betray us. And have you ever had this experience with maybe with your parents or older brothers and sisters or maybe grandparents or relatives or even professors? You have this you have this experience that their love, instead of being something that sets you free, is actually more like chains because they seem to have these unrealistic expectations for you. Or it seems like they want you to be someone that you're not or they're not accepting you for who you are. Right. So other people, they can actually be a source of greater frustration than joy sometimes. And what's another thing? Betrayal, hurt, being used being misunderstood. And this, I think, is a particularly powerful image. This is René Magritte's The Famine. And I think what he's trying to capture here is like, you have these clownish figures, right? And they're trying to consume each other, but they're starving. There's, some of, there's something of this that's still happening today, right? That people, people consume, they try to consume other people because they so badly need attention, they so badly need love, right? They're so, it, they're so desperately in need of affirmation. And it's very interesting because I came across this piece of art, which seems to put the same basic idea, but in a contemporary idiom, right? No real identities online. You never know who's commenting about you. No face. Words are powerful. Or who you're commenting about, right? So now this is the way we consume each other. And what else is going on in terms of this trying to find happiness in other people? We have the hookup culture, right? We have, we have serial, I don't know, fornication, right? This, 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 this commission of sin, where what happens? Two people don't really know each other but just use each other's bodies and still remain anonymous, which makes the loneliness even more intense. And even in marriage, right? Many of you probably will have the vocation to marriage, but what's, what's something incredibly unfair that people getting married do to each other is they expect their spouse to fill them completely. And this is impossible, right? It's an unrealistic expectation, right? Your spouse can only fill you so much because you have, you have an immortal soul that can only be filled by God. And so it's not a realistic or a fair expectation that your spouse make you perfectly happy. So rather, this is what Christian marriage is like, isn't it? This walking together side by side toward God. So this, in a sense, is a, a summary of um, what Thomas speaks about in his treatise on happiness. But what I'd like to do now is just pause for a minute and go back to these six places. So I don't think Thomas actually treats as explicitly other people as we just did. But what I'd like to do now is kind of look at these six places where we look for happiness. And I want you to start thinking about what the genuine spiritual value is that we're looking for in those places. Does that make sense? Okay, so I'm just going to say it out loud, but it's probably exactly what you're thinking, okay? Okay. So what is it that we're looking for in money? Like what's the, what's the deeper spiritual value people are looking for in money? 
Isn't it rest, right? Because if you had money, you wouldn't have to keep working, 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 pushing, 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 right? Trying to make ends meet. So we all want rest, and rest is a good thing, right? And this is what Jesus says, right? Come to me, all you who, are lab who labor and are burdened, and you will find rest for your souls. So what, is it, what are some spiritual goods, genuine spiritual goods that we're looking for, perhaps, when we look for money? Rest, but not only that, security, stability, right? Rest, security, and stability. Okay, power, control. I know it's really ugly, right? When you see, you know, you kind of creep yourself out when you're like, man, why am I so controlling? <laughs> or when somebody else is really controlling it, you like, kind, of, kind of want to get away, right? But what is it that we, what is it that, what's the genuine spiritual value we're looking for when we strive after this power or the, somehow the perfection of a power or controlling something perfectly? I think again, um, a kind of stability, right? A kind of security. But isn't it also that we have a sense of our freedom and that exercising power and control is a part of exercising our freedom? But you know what? Even more than that, I think this recognition of power and control as something important really harkens back to our deep intuition that each one of us is made for some noble accomplishment. Each one of us is made for some noble accomplishment. And that's what we have the capacity, right? That's what we have the power to do. That's what God gives us. Okay, what is it that we're looking for when we look for happiness and beauty? What's the deeper spiritual value in the beauty? Isn't it to be loved, right? This is what Augustine says. The beautiful draws our love, right? People love beautiful people. <laughs> people love beautiful things. And so part of wanting to be beautiful or wanting to be handsome is wanting to be loved. But it's not only that. To, the desire to be beautiful is also somehow the desire for perfection, right? And that's a fantastic word. We got some classics majors in here. Um, Perfactus, right? Per, so this is where we get the word perfect. Per meaning thoroughly. Factus from facere, to do or to make. So thoroughly made. Isn't that awesome? We all want to be perfect, right? We want to be perfectly made. This is not to be confused with perfectionism, right? Which is like down here. True perfection is up here, right? It's on a supernatural, spiritual level. But this is the intuition behind this desire for beauty. It's a desire to be loved, the desire for our perfection. Okay, oh, pleasure. What's, what is it that we're looking for? What's the deeper spiritual value we're looking for in pleasure? Isn't it precisely joy, right? Um, it's amazing. Okay, so this, I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you a little story here. So one day, so the sisters, sometimes we have these, um, these like lunches. They're kind of like, uh, you know, picnic lunches, you could say. And, you know, we just like get in line. And because most of our, so it's kind of fun when you have a picnic lunch because most of our lunches are in silence. I mean, those are nice too, because somebody reads to us. Nice to have somebody read to you. Okay, so we were having a picnic lunch. And so everybody goes through the line and picks up their food. And then we're sitting at a table like this. And, you know, there's there's like three other sisters around me. And we're talking and talking and talking and talking and, and eating and talking and eating and talking. And then um, I got to this 
my, the, the dessert was this amazing, this beautiful looking piece of carrot cake that Sister Nicholas Marie had made. And Sister Nicholas Marie, whenever she is in charge of the kitchen, everybody gets really happy. Okay, so they're all talking, 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 talking. And I'm ready to eat my carrot cake. So I take, take my fork and I put the carrot cake in my mouth. And I just, I cannot even pay attention to what the other sisters are saying because I'm so distracted. There's one thought that dominates my mind. And this is it. The thought that dominated my mind was, there is a God. And he loves me. <laughs> right? Like, did God have to make food taste so amazing? Did he have to make the world so beautiful? No. Right? Like I was delighted by one of these gorgeous black squirrels, right? Like this with this little rhythmic little pulsing across the grass. Okay, so he didn't have to do that. You know what Thomas Aquinas says joy is? He has at least two definitions. He has many, but these are two of the things he says about joy that I think are 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 particularly um, thought-provoking. He says, joy is rest in the possession of a good. Rest in the possession of a good. So when you have something good, you're, you have this joy, right? Like say you ask somebody out and now you're dating, right? Then you have this joy. Or I had the piece of carrot cake, <laughs> so that's joy, right? But he said it's also, he says joy comes from the firm conviction that we are loved. Isn't that beautiful? Joy comes from the firm conviction that we are loved. Right? So somehow in, this, um, in the search for pleasure, what we're really looking for is the joy that comes from love. Right? And this is why where there's no joy, there can never be enough pleasure. Because pleasure is empty in itself. It doesn't have meaning in and of itself. It only has meaning if there is a love and a goodness that's behind the pleasure. Okay, fame. What is it that we're looking for? What's the genu what are some of the genuine spiritual values we're looking for when we look for fame? Isn't it to be known, right? It's so easy today to, be, to just be one among many, right? You know, that's one of the sad things I see on, sometimes on college campuses is people are looking at their phones and they don't look at each other, right? I haven't seen that happen here. But that whole thing of like, you want to be known, we each want to be special. We want to be the favorite, right? Because, I mean, that's actually, it comes to the truth of who the human person is, right? God, God, in, God created each one of your souls directly, right? He wants you specifically to exist. You are known. You are loved. You are special to him. And this is what we're actually looking for when we look for fame. But not only that, Part of this idea of fame is also that being known for some noble accomplishment, right? Or being known for a special talent, a special gift. That's what we're looking for when we're looking uh, for fame or happiness in fame. Okay, finally, what, is it, what are the genuine spiritual values we're looking for when we look for happiness in other people? Isn't it again love, right? To be loved. But not just to be loved, also to be known, right? To be special, to belong, right? It's one of our most powerful needs to belong. So that when you're not there, you're missed. And when you come back home, you're welcomed. Okay, so why did I take you through all of this, the trees on happiness and the genuine spiritual values? Because 
This is my proposal. See these genuine spiritual values we just finished talking about? What I would like to propose is that these genuine spiritual values, the things that we want the most, right, to be beautiful, to be perfect, to, to have this freedom, to have rest, to have stability, to have all these things. I would like to suggest that how can we actually find these things? Through suffering. We can find these things through suffering. So this is where you start to think I'm really crazy. You walk out of the room. Okay, now, um, just kidding. Thanks for not walking out. So what I'd like to do is, so I'm basing, my, I'm basing this presentation on um, this article that I had the pleasure of writing for the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly called Suffering and the Narrative of Redemption. And Peter can make this available to you. And we'll, we'll also have a seminar, we'll have a seminar discussion on this article tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And Peter will announce more about that at the end of the lecture. Okay, so what I, what I want to do then is the basic idea is that more than theories like philosophical theories about suffering, I mean, those can definitely help us, but something, uh, and a way that we can, in a sense, have a more immediate access to truths about suffering, truths about the mystery of suffering, is through the narrative, through stories, through seeing other people's stories and seeing how our stories intersect with their stories and then drawing out parts of the mystery through the concrete story. Okay, so let's just start with our first narrative. It's a one minute masterpiece, isn't it? You can Google it, Coke Life Argentina. Okay, so what's going on there, right? Like, how does this make any sense? Like, look at these people, right? Um, you know, all their freedom is taken away. They can't get any sleep. They can't even be alone together. And do you remember this, like where they're, they got those, they're, they're loaded down with diaper bags in the park and then they're that carefree jogging couple. They got a lot of nerve, um, right? <laughs> but what's happening, like when they find out that they're having their second child, they're overjoyed. How does this make any sense? Well, I think our Lord tells us in the gospel, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. And isn't that precisely what's happening to this couple, right? They're losing their lives and they're actually finding it. What does it mean then to see from, from this story, right? Which is actually the, the experience of many married couples, right? At the very beginning. <laughs> um, this, this idea that you're losing your life. Have you ever thought about that? The two are supposed to become one flesh. How? Only by each one dying. It was so funny. A friend of mine was talking about how he goes on this marriage encounter retreat and the priest is talking about you got to die so you can become one flesh. And he realized, you know, I guess what I'm doing wrong is I always thought that the one flesh was me. Like that she was supposed to die to become him, which was really funny, right? But what has happened? Each, each of the two have to die, right? So die to what? Die to my time, right? Do, die to my way, die to my control, die to my ideas, die, die to my perf perfect house, right? Like, did you see how her house was wrecked? All their favorite stuff is destroyed, right? So they're dying. And have you noticed, oh, the fall here is so beautiful, right? We celebrated All Saints, right? We celebrate these things in the fall when things are dying. Trees are beautiful when they're dying. When a fire is dying, Right? There's something beautiful in the fire dying. Even more beautiful is a human being who's dying. 
right? Dying to selfishness, dying to self-centeredness, dying to vice, dying, right? dying to these ugly things. And I can't tell you how many married couples I've talked to and like how many moms will come up to me and say these kinds of things. So like, this is one of the moms. One of the moms said, Oh, sister, I know exactly what you're talking about. So, you know, when I first, when I first, me and my husband were first engaged, you know, he was just finishing law school and he like, was like top of his class. So now he's, he was Mr. Hotshot and all this kind of stuff. He wasn't always the most sensitive or patient guy, <laughs> if you get what I mean. He's a wonderful man, man of faith, definitely. But, you know, sensitive and patient, that's not necessarily him. And just the other day, you know, I was washing dishes at the sink and I, 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 I saw like out of the window that, he, you know, he was... There he was, you know, he had the stroller with the baby and then he had our four-year-old girl and he's got the dog and he was walking along and our four-year-old Betsy, she wanted to smell a flower. And when I saw my husband stop and back up so she could go smell the flower, I thought to myself, this is not the same man I married five years ago. Right? He's become so much more noble, so much more heroic, so much more wonderful. And, you know, he's, he, I was thinking about it. It's like he's become patient and thoughtful and sensitive. Like with every child we've had, he's become more of these things. And not only that, he's become more funny. Like I never knew he was so hilarious. But when he tries to make the kids laugh, he does really silly things that I, I think are adorable. Right? And so what is happening? He's dying. So what happens to us? when we become more kind, more patient, more generous, less selfish, what happens? We become more lovable. And it's amazing too, you know that word noble? It actually has its root, and I think in the old English word, which means knowable, right? You become more knowable. So all those things that are really um, the accretions of sin, right? Like selfishness is an accretion of sin, love, makes that die away. And you become more beautiful when it's not there. So this idea of dying to become more beautiful is one of the first elements of how suffering refines us, right? How suffering makes us more lovable. But let's add another layer of complication. that's called a dear future mom. And I almost think that I don't need to explain, right? It's just, it's all there to see. What was this, dear future mom? It was a masterpiece, right? It took us from the darkness of fear to the light and joy of love. And in a sense, that's what happens in all suffering, right? It begins in the darkness of fear, and it ends in the light and the joy of love. That's the basic trajectory. We can read it in the story of anyone's suffering. We can read it in the story of our own suffering. But let's look at it more closely. Right? We said that it begins with fear, right? You saw that. What kind of life will my child have? It begins with fear, fear of the unknown. Fear of suffering, fear of not knowing, fear of not being in control, fear of not having. And it's this fear that grips us on the threshold of suffering. But one of the greatest spiritual writers of our time, John of the Cross, put it this way. He said, 
To come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To come to possess what you have not, you must go by a way in which you possess not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. I think one of the common mistakes we make as human beings is just this exact mistake that this mom made at the beginning, right? Where she thinks, we think, life is going to be better on our terms. Okay, so this is my idea, God. This is how it should work. Dun, 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 dun. Right? You, like, you give them this, these are the steps. This is how my life should go. That's how I'm going to be happiest, right? But then one day, what happens? What happens? Like, what happened to this mom? She discovered just one smile at a time, one diaper at a time, one kiss at a time, right? One day at a time, that this child that she was at first afraid of because of its disabilities actually ended up being absolutely delightful, right? And so incredibly lovable. And so what did she discover? What can we all discover? That life is actually much more glorious on our Lord's terms than they are on our terms. But what is suffering? What does the crisis do for us? It shows us who we are, right? It shows us where we are. It shows us what we're made of. It invites us to become what we are not yet. So it shows us what we are, but it invites us to become what we are not yet. And see, it's, it's, it's critical, right? This letting go of knowing, letting go of understanding, letting go of controlling is critical. I love the way Leon Bloy puts it. Leon Bloy says, there, there are places in our hearts that do not yet exist. So into them enters suffering that they might have existence. Isn't that beautiful? There are places in our hearts that do not yet exist. So into them enters suffering that they might have existence. Or St. Therese of Lisieux, what does she say? She says, I will run the way of your commands for you make broad my heart. Right, think about that. Following the commandments, it stretches us, right? It makes us grow in love because we can't be like everyone else. We can't dress like everyone else. We can't behave like everyone else. We can't watch what everybody else is watching. So. Remember what our Lord tells us? Unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit, right? It yields 30, 60, or 100 fold. But the problem is, is that we don't want to die. So, um, you know, thinking about grains of wheat, I like to think about acorns this time of year, especially when I think about squirrels. Okay, so acorns, you've looked at acorns, right? You've got some really nice acorns around here. They're really, they're super cute. Acorns are really cute. I don't know if you notice how cute acorns are. Okay, thank you. So, <laughs> okay, so imagine that you are, an, you are an acorn, right? Imagine you are an acorn. This is what the typical acorn us thinks. I'm a really nice acorn. Yeah. Yeah, I am. You know what I want to become? I want, like to be a gilded acorn, right? Because like, what could be better than to be a golden acorn? 
And then all of a sudden a squirrel comes. Oh no, what's happening to me? The squirrel's taking me. And now he's burying me. Oh no, what? He's burying me. I can't believe this. And he buries you, right? And you're like, oh man, it's really dark in here. And then what's happening? It's like, it starts to rain, right? All this water starts to come in on you. You're like, no, I'm wet and dark. This is terrible, right? And then what happens? Something starts to break open inside of you. And breaks it, right? Something's breaking open. And it's like, you're like, this is kind of wild. This is amazing. And then 25 years later, what happens? You're this beautiful, majestic oak tree, right? We don't know how to dream for ourselves. Only God knows how to dream for us, right? Otherwise, we'd just be a silly, stupid, who like gilded acorn? Come on, everybody, right? <laughs> right? So like, you can think about this with the lives of the saints, right? How many of them have this kind of idea of what they want to be, right? Like John Paul II wanted to be an actor. I mean, no offense, okay? I mean, he wanted to, you know, renew Polish culture, revive Polish culture from the inside. I mean, it really was a, a good thing that he wanted to be an actor. But what did God want for him? God wanted for him to be like one of the most beloved popes in the history of the church, right? The pope that would play a critical role in the, fall, in the downfall of communism in the 20th century, right? Do you know what they were doing? You know, when, when John Paul II died, you know, Rome was like all in a tizzy. They were running around, right? Like, this, that's going to be crazy. Like, they get, their, all the, they get all their calculators out. They get all their math people. They're like, okay, how many people do you think are going to come? They were estimating 2 million people are going to come to Rome. We got to clean this place up. Like, we got to get new drains. We got to bring in new bathrooms. We got to coordinate how to get enough food, all this kind of stuff. And the traffic patterns, all. So they, they were preparing for 2 million people to come to Rome for John Paul II's funeral. Do you know how many people actually came to John Paul II's funeral? 5 million people. Right? This is what God wanted for John Paul II, to be the most beloved pope in the history of the church, right? who would really bring Christ to the world. So we don't know how to dream for ourselves, but God knows how to dream for us. So we have to let go of achieving this kind of imaginary perfection, right? this illusory dream of how we think things should be. So suffering, it gets us to stop thinking about ourselves, right? It matures us, it humbles us. Do you know that this gorgeous piece of art, Dear Future Mom, did you know it was actually banned in France? And why did they ban it? They banned it because 96% of parents who, re who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to abort their children. And so the French courts, when they made the ruling, said that the video's depiction of happy Down syndrome children is likely to disturb the conscience of women who had lawfully made different personal life choices. But is, don't you feel sad for those women? Because look at the joy. Look at the joy they left, they missed out on. And also, this is, this is related to the same idea, right? You wouldn't be here, I think, if you weren't striving for the truth and striving for holiness. But what's the common error human beings make when we're striving for holiness? We think holiness is ascending, right? We think it's going up. You know, I'm going to get more and more of the truth. I'm going to know more and more. I'm going to become more and more virtuous. I'm going to have like, like I'm going to understand the entire Bible, right? We think that it's this ascending. But what does Jesus show us holiness is? What does Jesus do? Jesus goes down. He descends and he stretches his arms out on the cross. And only in his suffering is he lifted up. So the way to holiness is not an ascent, but actually a descent. And this is, again, why John of the Cross would say, 
to come to the knowledge you have not, you must go by a way in which you know not. To come to be what you are not, you must go by a way in which you are not. And this descent, this way of the nada, this way of nothingness, of being obliterated, this way of dying, it's something that Satan always tries to talk us out of, right? The devil's always trying to talk us out of the cross. Why? Because the cross, the difficulty, is the very thing that will bring us closer to our Lord. I love the way Bishop Andrew Cousin put it. This is what he said. Okay, so imagine this. Answer this question for yourself, right? You're here tonight for a reason. Like, I mean, you're here this afternoon for a reason, right? You came because somehow this, you wanted to hear about this topic. So imagine, he says, if I gave you a magic wand and you could wave it over anything and that thing would disappear, okay? And he says, what is that anything? So what, what would be the anything in your life, in your past, in your past choices, um, is, it, is there some wound, some difficulty, some hurt that if you had this magic wand and you could wave it over it and make it disappear, you would do it? What is, can you think of what that thing is? What is that one thing, that wound, that pain, that difficulty, that hurt, that experience, or that struggle? That, that thing, that struggle, that is precisely where our Lord Jesus wants to meet you. That's where he wants to meet you. He wants to meet you on the cross. What does he say to us? Take up your cross each day and follow me. Right? That means that there's a struggle. That means there's a cross. There's a difficulty. There's a suffering each day. Right? He didn't say every other day. He didn't say just on Fridays, right? I mean, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's helpful. Um, so it's on the cross, right? It's, it's on the cross where we meet him and where our stories become intertwined. So what happens to us when we start to suffer? We become more of the person God made us to be. In a sense, we start to become more real. And you know, this is so fascinating. It's like it's, it's a reality that's so accessible that even children have an instinct for it. Do you remember this, this marvelous little children's book called The Velveteen Rabbit? I hope, I hope somebody read it to you when you were a child. Okay, so listen. Listen now to what, okay, so what happens in this, just to, to help you review here. So remember, there's this, it's about, the book is about stuffed animals becoming real. Okay, and in this particular scene I'm about to read to you, the Velveteen Rabbit, he's just the novice. He's just the beginner. He doesn't know what's going on. And he's talking to the wise skin horse, right? The wise skin horse who knows all about becoming real. Okay, so this is, this is their conversation. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Well, the, well, well, does it happen all at once, like like being wound up? Rabbit asked. Or does it happen? Does it happen bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once," said the skin horse. "You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily 
or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out, you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. Isn't that beautiful? Think about the mom hugging her Down syndrome child. Is either one of them ugly? No, only the people who don't understand. Okay, now I'd like to um, introduce you via pre-recorded video to two good friends of mine. I just consider it such an honor that, they're, that, I, that I can be their friend. <laughs> um, and this is actually part of this television series that our community was invited to do with EWTN. And it was, a, it was such a joy. We interviewed all these families, traveled across the country, interviewed them and all this kind of stuff. Okay, so I'm gonna show you clips. I'm sorry, I can't, I apologize that I cannot show you like one continuous clip of this particular family, Chastity and Mike and their children. So basically what I had to do is I took a little part from episode two, apart from episode four, apart from episode six, apart from episode nine, and I wanted to talk about them and look at them together with you. So I'm gonna show you these little clips from these interviews. And I'm also gonna share with you text from the script that I didn't have video footage for, okay? And I apologize that I wasn't able, I don't know how to splice video. Okay, but there's always the future. Now, but before I introduce you to them um, via recorded via pre-recorded video, I want to tell you just a little bit about them so you can kind of get to know them before you see them on screen. Okay, so Chastity is, um, so Chastity and Mike actually, they did, they, you know, they have regrets about their life before they married each other, but they, they said that John Paul II's theology of the body like was revolutionized their, their life and their marriage. And so they were already married when they discovered Pope John Paul II's theology of the body. And they like took off their wedding rings so they could like sneak into the theology of the body conferences for non-married people. And they said it was really amazing. So Mike, Mike is started off as a police officer and so their kids would run around, their boys would run around, they'd play police officer. And then he became a SWAT team operator. And so then the, guy, the boys would run around and play SWAT team operator. Meanwhile, Chastity is, um, I think she's, she has her degrees in nursing, I think, and also physical, so she works as a physical therapist, okay? So these two got married and then they had kid number one, then they had kid number two, and then they had kid number three. And anybody who has three kids or more knows this phenomenon that happens. You have one kid, that's fine, it's great, it's amazing. You have two kids, that's great, that's fine, that's amazing. Then you have the third kid, and then you ran out of arms, okay? So that's where people start to break down, is when they have the third kid, okay. So they had just had their third child, and Chastity was like, Mike, this is really hard. I don't know if I can do this by myself, because this is just like, you know, I'm with the kids all day, it's like, drains me totally, I don't have any adult interaction. Like my life, I just feel like my life is just broke. Can you do something to help me? Okay, so they're not like terribly rich, right? And so Mike's like looking for a solution, looking for a solution, looking for a solution. And so he says, okay, how about this chastity? How about this? How about when I come home from work, you just give me, you know, like a 10, 15, 10 minutes to shower up, get changed, and then I'll take over, okay? And then, you know, you can have off, and then maybe we can just like, you know, eat, give the kids a bath, put them to bed together, and then you'll have off again. She's like, oh, that sounds good. I like that, okay? So that's what starts to happen, right? So, um, so Mike comes home, he goes to shower, and Chastity's like so excited, okay? So he comes out of the shower, she hands him the baby, right? And then she's like, 
oh, she doesn't, she's like, whoa, this is so strange. What am I going to do with my time? Like, she doesn't know what to do with her time. So she's like, oh, okay, I think what I'll do is uh, I think I'll watch television, right? So she goes over here. I'm going to find a place to go here. Let's got to pretend. Okay, so she goes over here. And she sits down and watches television, okay? <sighs> time for myself, finally. Okay, wait, let me get this off the skin horse. Okay, so now um, this keeps happening, right? So, um, you know, Mike comes home, takes a shower, she gives him the baby, right? So this goes on, keeps going on, keeps going, keeps on. And it goes on for three months, right? That chastity just veges. Oh, actually, I forgot to tell you that after they finish bathing the kids and putting them to sleep, they both sit down and veg in front of the television, okay? So Mike comes home one day after three months of this, comes home, goes to take a shower. And um, then he, Chastity's about to hand him the baby. And he says, hold on a second, I need 15 more minutes. And she's like, well, she's feeling slightly ripped off, but she's like, okay, okay, fine. Right, she takes the baby. And then, um, then she realizes, she like looks at what Mike is doing. What's Mike doing? Mike's back there, he's in front of the television. He's pulling out all the plugs out of the television. He's like disconnecting. And she's like, what? Like, this is, what is he doing? And she's like, I don't even know if we know how to talk to each other, or the other anymore. Like, um, she, was like, she was like, what's going on? Right, so he takes the television, he takes the whole television outside, puts it in the garage, goes into this closet, opens up this closet. He gets a crucifix. Okay, they're Catholic. And he takes the crucifix and he nails it up in the center of the wall where the television was. Then he goes into this other closet over here and he happens to have in this closet over here, he's got an image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and the Immaculate Heart of Mary. They got it on a mall raid. He got him on a mall raid. And so he puts one up over here, puts one up over here. And Chassie is just like dumbfounded, right? Watching in awe. And Mike looks at her and he says, Chastity, from now on, I want this to be the center of our home. And she said, I, had, I was so terrified, but I have never been more attracted to my spouse in my entire life as I was at that very moment, right? Why? You know what so some of the studies that they've done on this have shown? that What is it that women are looking for most in a man? Well, they're looking for Jesus. <laughs> they're looking for a spiritual leader. And that's precisely what Mike was doing, right? He became the spiritual leader of their family. And later on, he goes on to found, they live in Fort Worth, Texas. I forgot to tell you that. So later on, he went to found a men's group called Guns and Rosaries. Okay, so now we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up with their story. And here in their story, so you're going to see them, they're pregnant. Remember, that was child number three, okay? Now they're pregnant with their fourth child. Everyone was excited to welcome the new sibling. And then uh, when he was born, we found out he, oh, he, when he was born, he wasn't breathing. He was blue. So the, um, he was being resuscitated, and everybody ran in from the NICU, and it was chaotic. And, um, but they took him out, you know, they whisked him to the NICU, and I was just left there by myself, no baby, just terrified. Um, so over the next few hours, it kind of developed that he's very sick. He has a genetic um, abnormality is what they thought. He probably wouldn't live through the night, so we needed to call the priest quick. So we called the priest in and we had an emergency baptism. Um, and they actually told us, you know, you need to prepare yourself to bring him home and let him die, because that's what's going to happen. He's not going to be able to live in his state. Uh, and they told us this several times, over and over. Six days after we brought him home, that, that night, he stopped breathing eight different times. And so the morning we went to the hospital, um, they said, you know, if you want him to survive, we need to give him a trach. 
Uh, so he said, okay, whatever you need to do. So he got a trait, he was in the ICU, um, but then he would still stop breathing. It didn't fix the problem. And nobody knew what syndrome he had. Nobody knew um, anything, why he was stopping to breathe. Because the doctors hadn't seen it before. Uh, so the trach didn't, didn't help it. So they said, okay, we're gonna need to put him on a ventilator, which is life support, you know? And, okay, so they put him on the ventilator and he finally was able to be stabilized at that point. You know, he couldn't eat. Um, they told us he was blind, he was deaf, couldn't breathe. There's really nothing actually that he could do on his own. Uh, but he was ours and we loved him. And so we just said, you know, this is God's will, we'll accept it. It was really a, a process. Uh, we never were angry with God or mistrusted God. I mean, really, we felt God's presence. He was so thick at that time. You know, there was no doubt that this was His will. You know, the only thing we had questions of is what He wants to do. <laughs> what do you see right there? What's one of the first things that happens in suffering, or when the suffer when you're on the threshold of suffering? Right there, it has this this kind of destabilizing effect, and. Here, this new suffering little baby, right, comes into their world unexpectedly. And this is what Mike said, right? This is, all, this is from the script, the interview script that we... Mike says, I remember when Dominic had just been born. I had the realization that life had changed for us, and I was gripped with fear and anxiety. Okay, look at this guy. He faces death every day, right? And he's gripped by fear and anxiety with this little baby. Why? Because there's something about suffering that destabilizes us, right? There's, there's something about the beginning of suffering that makes us think that we're dying. He connected to the mother of Jesus because Mary had to watch her son suffer and he couldn't do anything. She couldn't do anything. And so he, he recognized that this is what he was called to do also, right? To accompany his son in his suffering and not being able to do anything. But look what's beautiful here. Mike is so vulnerable and so honest. Have you ever heard this, this saying where sometimes people say this? You know, sometimes people say things to you and you just want to strangle them, right? And this is one of those sayings. They say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Don't worry. God's never going to give you more than you can handle. Okay? So not only do you want to strangle them, but what they're saying is false. God will give you more than you can handle. Why? So that you will need him. God will give you more than you can handle so that you will need him. And this is precisely what was happening. This is precisely, is precisely what's happening to Mike and Chastity. But what's happening to Mike? He's becoming more real, stronger, and therefore more lovable. But also look at the way Chastity and Mike are interpreting their story. They're interpreting it as suffused with God, right? Full of God. You know, there was another woman that we interviewed who was suffering severely because her husband had neuromuscular Parkinson. And she said, joy isn't the absence of suffering. Joy is the presence of God. And this is what Chastity and Mike are saying, right? That Remember you said, when she said at the very beginning, she said God was so thick at that time, right? They were in tears because they were struggling with this new baby that they had, right? Who, who died, was almost on the threshold of death, right? So... 
So this, this way you interpret your story is absolutely critical. And you know what sociologists and psychologists say? They say one of the key determinants of happiness, one of the key determinants of happiness is not what happened to you in your past, but how you interpret it. One of the key determinants of happiness is not what happened to you in your past, but how you interpret it. So this is this beautiful, the eyes of faith, right? That's the means by which they're interpreting. So this is from Mike. I was asking, I was, we, were, we, were, um, we were interviewing Mike a little bit further. And this is what Mike said. Mike said, when listening to the gospel at mass this Sunday, this line hit me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think this challenge from our Lord is key for all parents, but especially parents of kids with special needs. Parents who have the unique call to care for a child with, with special needs will necessarily lose their lives. All expectations and the sense of normal are lost in the life of a parent raising a child who is physically disabled. The crux of the challenge, however, is the phrase, for my sake. When the loss is accepted for his sake, then life makes sense and true peace and joy are found. However, when this critical component of the equation is missing, the loss of one's life and the sense of normal produces anxiety, depression, abuse, divorce, and even death. When suffering that is endured through raising a child with special needs is turned in on oneself instead of offered to our Lord, the weight becomes unbearable. We have experienced both in the past five years and found that losing our life for his sake is not easy but takes time, like weight training. It requires a daily decision. Some days we rely on ourselves too much and things look bleak and the anxiety produced from this self-absorption is suffocating. On the other hand, when we intentionally offer the suffering and the loss of normal to him, things begin to make sense and we're able to take on more and more. We find that we can pour ourselves out endlessly when Christ is at the center of that suffering. In raising Dominic, we can see clearly God's plan to show us how to rely on him rather than on ourselves, our own expectations, and our own control. God's drama is always more interesting and dynamic than the one we try to plan and create for ourselves. Okay. So we talked about that destabilizing effect. But then we also see here, as you go further into suffering, what do you have? The sense of that you're losing your life, right? This anxiety, this depression, this loss of normal. And Mike tells us that the temptation now is self-pity, self-absorption. And it's also where he tells us that what do we need? Surrender, trust, right? To let God work what he's going to work in us. Have you heard um, of C.S. Lewis, I believe it was his, his famous analogy of, of the sculpture, right? And the, the marble of the sculptor, if this master sculptor is gonna make you into a beautiful sculpture, 
He has to take the marble and he has to hammer at it, right? He has to chuck it. He has to like polish it. He has to scrape at it, right? And and we and what has to happen? The marble has to be docile to the blows of the master artisan. This is why surrender and trust are so critical to suffering well, to dying well, you could say, right? Because what is our automatic impulse? It's to resist, right? And to try to take back control. I don't know if you've ever read this. I, I highly recommend it. It's um, a work of John Paul II's called The Christian Meaning of Human Suffering. The Christian Meaning of Human Suffering. And in number 29, paragraph 29, he says, suffering is in this world to release love. This little suffering baby, what does it do? It draws love out of them for the child. But then they see each other suffering for the sake of little baby Dominic. They see their other kids suffering for the sake of the baby Dominic. And then it makes them love each other even more. So it's really beautiful to see them inhabiting their story, interpreting their story. And we find this interpretation of their story even in the name that they gave to their son. Okay, why did they call him Dominic? So this is what Chastity said. Chastity said, we named him Dominic after Saint Dominic, that great preacher. But we call our Dominic the preacher without words. His life, his presence, his appearance, they shock people but he preaches the sanctity of life and the goodness of life. Now, I had to ask Mike during the interviews, I mean, I just felt compelled. Because I kept talking about Dominic and his disabilities. And so I was like, well, you guys, what, you know, Mike, what is wrong with Dominic? Like, what syndrome does he have? Like, what, you know, has he been, like, have they actually been able to figure out what syndrome or genetic disorder he has? And so now Mike is going to answer that question. We would just call it the happy holy syndrome uh, because, <laughs> you know, he, whenever he was around the Eucharist, when he was in church, he was just a totally different kid. He would just kind of gaze typically in his normal, normal behavior and kind of look off um, early on. And, and when he went into the sanctuary, he was looking at something. He was, he was tracking and, and doing these things that he ordinarily wouldn't do. And, it's just a, a great consolation that, that God uh, provided, uh, a gift, you know. I think every Sunday we go to Mass, some, some new family comes up to, to us and, and touches him and talks to us about him and just how amazed um, they are at him. So now I'm going to read to you what she wrote to me. There are times in this life with a severely disabled child that I feel like I'm suffocating literally being held underwater. I began having anxiety attacks a few years back, and I have what I think is a form of PTSD from the many times we've had to intervene to save Dominic's life. Once was before Thanksgiving when I was up early making pies. The alarms in Dominic's room went off, and so I ran in and found him gray. So I was able to bring him back, and afterward I went, I went back to making pies, and I remember thinking, this isn't normal. I don't care about pies. I just saved my kid's life. I struggle with depression and often have to pull myself up from loathing the life that I have. What makes life hard is the lack of normalcy 
and having to deny my kids the things that other kids with a normal family could have, like sports, because we can't do stuff like that with Dominic. Having to pack so much just to leave the house and making a mental plan just in case there's an emergency when we run out, it's just the chronic stress. So in these instances, life certainly would be easier without him. We could be what the world deems normal, and it just may be fun. And it's not always just pleading with God for his life. There have been times where I've pleaded with God to take his life, make his suffering end, and mine too. And even in those times, eventually I have to stop and say, your will, Lord, and not mine. I'll do this as long as you ask. So in a sense, I guess the way that Dominic makes our life better is that he brings the reality of heaven through those little joys sprinkled in a difficult life, as well as the pains of Calvary right up front in our lives. We have constant opportunities to love Jesus through Dominic's distressing disguise, especially when we don't want to. God has given my other kids firsthand experience of pouring themselves out for someone who can do nothing for them in return. They love Dominic for Dominic's own sake, not theirs. And hopefully, they will grow to love him for God's sake. I am so thankful that the Lord is teaching us to love in this way. And while it's terribly difficult, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And through the tremendous grace we have received from God, I can see while that, while that fairy tale life may be easier, it would be much poorer. I consider our family rich to have Dominic, to have the little joys the world doesn't see. Last month, I taught him to give me a kiss, a tremendous accomplishment. We have these sufferings to unite our hearts to the Lord, the opportunity to really need God. I'm afraid that a life without this severe form of suffering would lead me straight to hell via the road of the world. Dominic's limitations make us slow down, stop, and take time to see, really see. We find ourselves on our backs so often through despair, depression, and other surgery, and we must look up, open our eyes to see him who saves. And it gives us opportunity to unite ourselves with Jesus on the cross and the opportunity to say yes, even when it feels like hell. It's easy to say your will be done, but when you have repeatedly watched as your child is being wheeled back for yet another emergency surgery that you're unsure he'll come out of, you have to really trust and mean those words. When Dominic was born, one verse stood out to me, and I had it hanging over his incubator and later his bed. Still, this simple verse gets me through many hard times. I find great comfort in it. It is my very favorite. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my soul, bless his holy name. Do not forget all he has done for you. This is really difficult to hear, right? I mean, Chastity, she's so, she's so brutally and beautifully honest. And what makes it 
painful and beautiful is what? That we see both a dying and a rising, right? A dying and a new birth. Where we can't, but we can't help moved by chastity's authenticity, right? She's so real. And what are chastity and Mike showing us? Right? They're showing us, like, do you see, like, is it wasn't that beautiful what she said, right? Christ's most active time of his life was when he was on the cross, when he couldn't do anything. And she's like, Dominic's not gonna be able to do anything, right? And then Mike was saying, Dominic shows us how to trust, right? Because he can't do anything for himself. Well, we need to be like that before God, right? We need to just trust and let God do for us, right? Look at this amazing wisdom that they have because of their suffering. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, I have much to tell you, but you cannot bear it now, right? They hadn't, in other words, I think, one way of reading it is they hadn't suffered enough. After they suffered, after they saw the cross, after they experienced the resurrection, after they experienced persecution and God's deliverance, then they'll have a wisdom. And so I think this is part of what we see in Chastity and Mike, this wisdom that comes from suffering, this closeness to God, that comes from suffering, this beautiful growth in love that comes from suffering. And what does suffering do? We see it so clearly in Mike and Chastity. Suffering makes us more real, right? Just like those stuffed animals. It makes us more real. It makes us, in other words, more ourselves. Suffering is the arena in which God purifies us of all that is not of him, so that we can become more and more ourselves, more and more the person, the saint, he made each one of us to be. And so what is the fruit of suffering? But joy, joy, rest in the possession of love, rest in the possession of our true selves, our purified selves, our perfected selves, and rest in the possession of our Lord himself. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.